honored to be with you and to speak on this important topic, which is, I want to just suggest to you, maybe the most important series you'll ever go through. Um, I was going to do an interview a, a while back for something, I can't remember, a podcast or something about a book that I had written. And they, before the interview started, they were like, oh, we didn't get your bio. We don't know how you want us to introduce you. And I said, just however you want, I don't care. And so they said, this is Bo Stern Brady, an expert on suffering through growth. And I had a moment of self-reflection. I was like, shoot, that's not really what I was going for. (laughs) And when I was in college and starry-eyed about ministry and life and God and all the things, I wasn't really thinking, this is going to be my job description. I'm going to teach people how to suffer well. And so actually in college, I went when I was 16. And after that, they changed the rules so people couldn't go at 16 anymore. So I had some kind of an impact there, I think. (laughs) But I was there in Bible college, and I fell in love, and I had a really deep six-month romance that was meant to go the distance but didn't. And I broke up with him, and I really wasn't that sad until he started dating someone who was way better than me. Like, she just still, she's so much better than me. And I just really was, it was, it was an awful feeling, and I felt grief and sorrow for one of the first times in my very advanced life. And I, what I wanted to do was, you know what, date somebody else. That'll do it. That'll get rid. I don't want to feel this because it's blah. So I just want to date someone else. I want to sing a happier song. I want to read a happier scripture. I want to do a happier thing. I want to outrun this yucky feeling. But even when I was that age, I felt the voice of God say, lean into this. Experience this grief. You'll be glad that you learned how. And so I remember just getting on my bed with my best friend and just wailing it out. I just grieved over this love lost. It was so sad. And I let myself feel it and and weep for a lot of things. And it helped me feel a lot of things that I hadn't given voice to and I hadn't put words around. And when I was done, I felt better and more whole and more clean. And that's my story of lament. It's not. It's actually not. I went on in that season to fall in love with another guy, and he ended up being the one, and we got married when we were just really, really mature, 19, back in the 80s when people really knew how to dress. And it was wonderful and awful and hard and delightful. And we had three amazing daughters and we loved parenting and we were, but we were so excited for empty nesting. And so then we did what you do when you're done having kids, you have another, yes, you know, and you have another kid and you stretch it out longer. So we have four amazing kids and we settled into ministry at Westside and Bend. And, um, I remember it, it was a, fall, beautiful fall day when uh, my husband said, something is not right with me. Something is just not okay. Uh, My golf swing is 40 yards short. And I was like, oh no, your golf swing is suffering. This can't be. And so we went to the doctor and ended up with a neurologist. And after five really, really stressful months, landed on a diagnosis of ALS, um, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. And it slowly paralyzes its victims until only their eyes and brain function. 
And uh, my husband, in that moment, I, something happened sort of like magical. I feel like he became a hero in that moment. And he, he really wasn't before. And um, he wouldn't mind you tell, me telling you that, even especially from his vantage point now. Um, but it was a moment where he said, we need to step up and we're going to serve the purpose of God in this moment to the ALS community. And we're going to show people how to suffer well. And um, so we tried. We tried really hard. And I took care of him for five years as he slowly lost all of his abilities. And uh, there was a day when he had to send his golf clubs to a missionary in Africa because he knew he couldn't golf anymore. And there was a day when he handed me the keys to the car and said, I'm not going to be able to drive anymore. And a day when he said, I really want to take you out for Valentine's Day, but you're going to have to feed me. Um, it takes a really strong man to let his wife feed him in a small town where everybody knows him. And there was a day where he had a feeding tube put in and he knew he was never going to eat real food again. Um, and we were up six or seven times a night just taking care of his needs, trying to keep him from choking on his own saliva, trying to keep him alive as long as we could. It was sort of a desperate race to eternity in that time, and it was just this kind of pushing heaven away while welcoming it in. And in October of 2014, uh, he went on hospice, and they felt like he had probably two months to live. And then that Thanksgiving, my oldest daughter said that she was expecting our second grandbaby, and Steve asked her when the baby was due, and she said July. And he said, well, that's my new goal. And there was no way that guy was going to make it till July. So my grandbaby, Phineas Bray, was born on July 6, 2015. And my daughter and her husband were all over those nurses saying, you've got to get us out of this hospital. We've got to take this grandbaby. He's got an appointment to meet his grandfather. They brought him to our house. We set that baby in Steve's arms and propped him up, and Steve wept over Finn and dedicated him to Jesus. And it was like a moment watching two helpless men of God sort of high-five on their way through. Six days later, 12 days later, he woke up, and I knew things weren't well, and I knew we were nearing the end. But there's this thing you just hold on, you know, you just want to hold on. And after rescuing him for so long, it was so hard to face that this is really happening. And um, that morning at 11, he, or sometime in the morning, he went into respiratory distress. And, and all the survival instinct in me kicked in to want to rescue him, to want to stop it. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say, help him home. Just help him home. And so I got up next to his wheelchair and I began to tell him all that he meant to us and how brilliantly he had lived. And I told him he was going to have the best meal of his life in just a minute. And he was going to see the people that he loved and things were going to be so good and we were going to be fine and everything's going to be good. And at 11.52 with Beauty for Ashes playing in the background and all of his kids and people around him, he flew away home. And I fell at his feet in his wheelchair and I poured out my gratitude to Jesus for the gift of life. And in that moment, I could see Steve doing the very same thing. 
just pouring out his gratitude to the God of life for the gift of life. I don't think there was a single why me. I don't think there was a single how could you. I think that when all is clear and we see clearly what God has done in the temporary little moment that we have on our timeline, everything is beautiful. And I went to bed that night and I woke up. I slept for the first time in about five years. And I woke up a widow at 49 and not knowing quite what would happen next, who I would become, what I would do, how do you start over. And I wanted very badly to think about something happier, to do something else, to focus on something good. And I, But I knew this is a time for leaning in to lament. This is a time to feel it and let God show up in it and let him remake something beautiful. And I'm going to tell you, just spoiler, the pieces that he put back together of my heart were not the pieces of me. They were the pieces of my view of him and how God can be trusted. And I think that we were created for a garden You know, we were created to live in something pretty awesome. And then the fall takes us out of that. And our our peace and our confidence is shattered. And all of you have had that moment. Maybe it was the moment you were born. Maybe it was even before that. Trying to wrestle our emotions into some sort of prison of shame where this one doesn't get to exist. Because it causes people to think I'm not, I'm questioning God. Or I'm not happy enough. Or I'm not successful enough. And it is dangerous dangerous for us. And I am telling you, we're not doing it well in the church. We are not. And we ought to be leading the way of people who can experience honest emotions, honest joy, honest sorrow, and show up for each other in it. But if we cannot show up for our own selves in it, we're really going to struggle to be able to show up for other people. And you know who was great at lament? People of Israel. They were great. At, and so sometimes I'm kind of judgy about them when I read about how they did the wandering and the stuff. And I'm like, I would have done better. But they are great at lament. They had uh, the first part of Lamentations, a book that's come to be really dear to me, a book that starts with one of the most beautiful lines, I think, in all of literature, how lonely sits the city that once was full of people. And it's an acrostic, Lamentations. Three of the chapters, four of the chapters of Lamentations are an acrostic. That's a poem that starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And every line after that, 22 lines, starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, Those aren't easy to write. I don't even know. I haven't ever tried. But I don't think an acrostic could be easy to write. And I think Jeremiah could have done it an easier way. But the reason for the acrostic in Lamentations is to say this is expressing our grief from A to Z. I'm going to get it all out in front of God. I'm going to get all my sorrow out, all my pain, all my honest emotion out in front of him. Why? Because I believe he can handle it. I believe I wasn't meant to carry this alone. And the people of Israel didn't let each other carry grief alone. And they didn't try to pack it away or hide it. They erupted in grief. They wailed. They gnashed their teeth. In places it says they hissed. There was, I don't know if that works. I haven't tried that one, but maybe I'm gonna. I want to go for a run. I'm going to try some hissing. They tore their clothes. They put ashes on their face. They offered prayers. They lit candles. They stopped grooming. I remember legitimately asking the question, is it possible to cry yourself to death? Is that possible? It's not. 
Good news, it's, it's really not. Um, is it possible though? We feel like, what am I gonna do with all that pain? We don't, we just, I think we don't trust that God can handle it. Um, <clears throat> we don't know what to do or how to relate to the people involved in our stories if we're honest about the hurt they caused or if we're honest about the hurt we caused them. We see it as weak. It's, it, big girls don't cry. We've been saying it way too long and believing it far too long. You guys, I used to teach a hermeneutic or a homiletics class and uh, it, it, especially to women, I still teach women how to speak. And one of my tenets, one of my rules, one of my strong, strong guidelines was don't cry too much from the platform because people will want to rescue you, but they won't want to learn from you. <laughs> God got me on that one. Now I just can't do anything without Kleenex. Um, so we see it as weak and we see weak as bad and it's not weak is strength in the kingdom. And then we see joy and sorrow as mutually exclusive emotions. Like if, if I experience sorrow, I must not experience joy. I must not be able to find that, but they aren't. They mingle together really well. Joy and sorrow can dance together and it's okay. It's safe to feel both of them. In fact, I have a theory that you can't really feel one truly without feeling the other truly. This is how we are created. This is how we were wired. These reasons and so many others keep us hiding behind fake smiles and building bigger and I'm sorry, but stupider Christian platitudes that we offer to people in pain and it doesn't work for them. That those platitudes either cause pain or shame. Things like, God would never give you more than you can handle. Dummy. You're not going through this hard thing because God in his sovereignty would not give you more than he can. God exists for the things you can't handle. It's the whole, the whole theme of our story is he came to rescue us from what we couldn't handle. Things like, um, things like you know what? You just need to focus on gratitude. I have a friend who lost a son at 21 and heard from more than one person who was so glad you still have three left. Gosh, that's dumb. I mean, somewhere we've got to get a handle on the fact that God enables us to feel this stuff. It, it isn't okay to just say forgive and move on. Uh, I, I think that we push people to focus away from their sorrow rather than turning into it by telling them these things. And, and I think one of the reasons we do is because we're a little bit worried. What if the God I'm preaching doesn't work? If I don't think the God that I'm giving to you in your sorrow works, then I'm going to need to figure out a reason why you're still feeling it. So I'm going to make it your fault. You didn't focus on the right thing. You're not looking at gratitude. You still have three kids, all the things. And this doesn't work. It causes more pain and more shame. And instead of putting our emotions in the prison of shame, like I shouldn't feel that, I shouldn't do that, I should, I should be able to control that, I should faith my way out of this fear or anger or sorrow, instead of turning away from our emotions, what if we turn toward them and let them lead us toward the wound that's causing pain? and toward the God who can bring healing. Because I don't know that we can heal from the things we don't allow ourselves to feel. I think we can hide them as best we can, but the rug gets really lumpy after sweeping things under it for so long, and pretty soon we're tripping over it and wondering what is wrong. Why can't I get past this thing? So 
six gifts. Six gifts of lament. There are a bunch of them, but I'm going to focus on six. And in God's wisdom and sovereignty, they all start with C. So there you go. It's a little gift. My gift to you. The first one is clarity. When we are honest with our sorrow, we can start to build language around what it is that we're feeling. When we just live in swirling or hidden grief, we end up not naming what it really is. I have a friend who does this brilliant thing with her three little boys who are go-getters. And when they get in a fight and when they get in conflict, she makes them stop and name what they feel and name what they need. I feel this and I need da-da-da. I feel like he stole my Legos and I need to punch him in the face. That's their kind of way right now, the stage they're in. But they'll mature from that. But I love that idea. I feel betrayed, and I need to know God hasn't forgotten me. I feel alone, and I need to know I'm loved. I feel like a failure, and I need to know I'm forgiven. I feel overwhelmed, and I need help from someone to process this. I feel overwhelmed, and I need people to give me some space. But I want to be able to say it. I, I want to know what I'm feeling and I want to name what I need so that when we start to put language around lament, it can produce something in our lives and it can do something good for us. I think discipleship is language. It is all the things you sang this morning in these songs. That's discipleship. You're learning about God, the great defender, as you sing those words out to him. And so putting language around our lament gives us clarity toward what we're feeling. And this language of lament also helps us build a language inside community. If I can tell you what I feel and what I need, you know how to step in in a way that brings life instead of a way that brings guilt or pain or shame. The second one is comfort. Listen to this scripture, 2 Corinthians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Did you, when you signed up to follow Jesus, did you say, I want to share abundantly in your sufferings? I don't know that that's been the message of the American church, but I'm telling you, it is the message of the Bible. We share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. And when we share in his suffering and we can invite him into ours, then we have comfort from him. And when we go it alone, it's really hard to find true comfort, even from people. It was really hard. I had a, on one of the worst days of my <clears throat> husband's illness. Um, I was struggling being a good caregiver, being a good parent, being a, uh, I was on a deadline for a book. I was struggling being a good pastor at all. And I just had lost it one day and I felt myself just pushing it away, pushing it away, not wanting to lean into it, not wanting to look at it, not wanting to visit what I was feeling. But finally I just did the thing like my dorm room at Portland Bible college, fell on my bed, sobbed out my pain, told God what I was feeling, probably didn't use great language, did all the things. I am a mess. And I remember telling him, I can't even get dinner on the table tonight. I can't even do the most basic thing that you've asked me to do. This load is too heavy. And finally, I kind of got through the sorrow wave. And by the way, I feel like those waves of sorrow last about 20 minutes. 
every time. I really do. You push it away, you push it away, you, you give into it, you think it'll kill you. It doesn't. It lasts about 20 minutes, then it spits you up on shore, cried out, exhausted, but feeling somehow better. You don't know why, you just feel better. And so I kind of straightened myself up. My doorbell rang, and I hate when people come to my house. I really hate it. And I was like, I don't want to get the door, and I've got mascara, and I'm a mess, and I don't feel my mess. But I went and got the door, and standing on the front porch was my neighbor, who I had never met, and I am embarrassed to tell you, 15 years of living there. I really don't like to leave my house. (laughs) And she's there. She is an old Hungarian woman with short gray hair and piercing blue eyes. And she's standing on my porch with a big black soup pot. And she looks at me, (laughs) which must have been a treat for her. And it's just like a mess. And she says to me in her thick accent, rough day. And I I immediately want to revert to Christian Bow. Nope, I'm fine. I'm good. All things work together. Nope, I didn't. I said, nah, really, really rough day. She didn't even know my husband was sick. And she pushes the soup pot into my hands and she says to me, God told me and walks away. Walks away. The God who knew I couldn't get dinner on the table sent Kareen with dinner and it was brilliant. It was so, so good. It was like Hungarian stew something because God, when he sends you dinner is going to send something good usually. Um, (laughs) And this is not a cause and effect story. It's not, I handled my grief well. And so somebody showed up with dinner. No, dinner was going to come. I'm convinced of it. But because of that time of leaning into the arms of Jesus and letting go of all that I was feeling, I recognized the miracle of it when it showed up. And I felt this is what it means to be held by the God who mourns with us. He mourns with us. He provides for us. He steps in with a pot of stew when we need it. So comfort. The third one is communion. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That word comforted in that scripture is the Greek word parakaleo, and it means to invite or call to come up close. God says, when you mourn, that's when I call you closest to me. That's when you can come and sit in my lap. That's when I'm here with you in your suffering. It's different than just his presence. It's his presence with a determined purpose to comfort you. It's his presence that shares in your suffering. Before I went through this time with my husband, I had experienced some things, but nothing like this. And when I would take actual communion, and isn't it interesting that Jesus could have picked anything, any way for us to remember him. He could have had us remember the triumphal entry. He could have had us remember the healing. He could have had us remember the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. But instead, he has us remember the most shameful moment in his life, the cross, the body and the blood, the sorrow and the celebration, the tragedy and the triumph. It all comes together at his table. That is communion. And in sharing in his, he invites us to bring ours. And so before, when I would take communion, I would be able to visualize Jesus suffering for me. But now when I take communion, I can visualize Jesus suffering with me. Jesus by the bed of my husband. Jesus hovering over my kids as they mourned the loss of their father. Jesus at every wedding where I have to sit through the dumb father-daughter dance. 
Jesus there in the middle of it. The suffering Jesus, who is the centerpiece of our faith. Why do we start to build a faith that worked around suffering? That was not right, but here we are. So communion is a gift of lament. Number four is courage. And that is a weird one because I know it doesn't feel courageous to cry over something, but it is. Because when we face our pain head on, when we let our emotions take us in the direction of our wound, and when we let God show up and tend to that wound, it gives us courage to know the next thing won't kill us. Gives us courage to know we can face whatever's next, whatever comes from the next spot. Because don't, don't you feel... Like sometimes you get all your ducks in a row, you get all the bills paid, all the kids are happy and well-fed, everything's going fine, things are good. And don't you feel that little bit of, oh no, what's next? I'm not going to turn on CNN. I'm not going to watch the news. I'm not going to talk to a neighbor because somebody is going to pop my joy bubble. This is, we, lament gives us courage to face sorrow and courage to feel joy. Like I get to feel it all the way authentically because I know, yes, the wave of joy also doesn't last forever, but I'll be okay on the other side of it because I've got the resource of lament at my disposal. When I get hurt, I can go to God for healing. When I get hurt, I can come to you. I can express pain authentically and it's not going to be something that has to go in that suitcase that no one gets to ever see. So it gives us courage when we truly lean into the wave. It gives us courage to move beyond this idea of just move on or just get over it. Um, It empowers me to take more risks, to love more freely, to feel more deeply. Number five, a gift of lament is compassion. Lamenting honestly gives us compassion for others, but it also gives us compassion for ourselves. And we are hard on ourselves. I had a moment recently where um, my husband, I have a new husband, by the way, who's here and he's wonderful. And I'm sorry, I, didn't, I, sh- I should have set that up better. Um, but <laughs> my husband and I had a discussion the other day and I left it with, I was full of all kinds of feelings. And I was like, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? Because what I realized is I hate to be wrong. I just hate being wrong so much. It makes me feel not just wrong. It makes me feel shame like humiliated and what is that and I saw it's causing icky things in the way that I communicate with my beloved and so I sat down with my bible and my journal and I immediately was taken back to this moment in first grade Um, my first grade teacher was also my father's first grade teacher so she was old and grumpy a grumpy woman and um There was one kid in my class she especially didn't like, and she used to regularly call him up in front of the class and spank him in front of us. And it was, can you imagine that happening now? Not in a million, I hope, not in a million years. Um, But that moment, in that that setting, I, I felt so much shame for him and humiliation for him and I felt unsafe in my world apart from my family and I saw where I have pulled that all the way into my life now in these areas where six-year-old Bo was making decisions for 56-year-old Bo and I realized oh I can 
have compassion on six-year-old Bo. I'm, I'm equipped now to be able to say, we're okay. We're safe in the world. And so having compassion on ourselves as we lament is a big deal. On the little you that suffered things you shouldn't have suffered. On the person that got hurt or rejected. That this is, you're, you're able to tend to your wounds, but also you're able to help others. You're able to step into their space and hold space for their suffering. I remember when I was, um, my, my, we had an accident when my daughter was just a little, not even one, and um, she was in the hospital for a while, and we thought we were going to lose her. She was my first baby. I'd never been a mom before. I had never almost lost a baby before. But I remember the moment, uh, and she was fine later, but that Christmas, I remember standing in Hallmark store, reading a Christmas card, weeping, seeing Mary hold Jesus, and knowing what Mary was going to go through. It opened up my heart in a way I couldn't have I couldn't have understood until I had gone through that. As I work with ALS families, I have a heart for them that I could not have had before. I would have felt sorry for them, but this is different. The things that you have experienced that you think disqualify you may in fact be giving you the sixth gift of lament, which is credibility. The things that you've experienced may be positioning you if you're willing to face them and ask God to transform you through them. They may position you for the greatest work you've ever imagined in your life. I love being a speaker. It's what I do for a living. But there is no world in which the ALS Association would have had me speak to their fundraising banquet thing uh, at the Oregon Convention Center. No world. I'm a faith-based person. That's not what they are. But they put me on their stage, not because I speak well and not because I know God, but because I know ALS. And it gave me an opportunity to offer the hope of Jesus into a world that's dying without him. Credibility is a big deal. I um, did a Bible study <clears throat> when it was during, in the midst of my husband's battle with ALS, and um, it was called Beautiful Battlefield. So the women coming knew what they were getting into. And we had lots of women at it. And at one point, a young woman came up to me. She was about 25 and lovely. She was engaged to be married to the love of her life, and her parents loved her, and she had a dream life. And she said to me, I just, I don't really like being in the small group that I'm in because they're so negative. They just keep talking about what they've been through. They just keep talking about their hard things. And I really feel like they just need to be happier. And so we started talking a little about her story. And she said, you know, really, I just haven't been through anything. I've worked really hard to live a good life. And I, I, and so I start drilling down, like, has anyone ever been mad at you? Have <laughs> you ever made your, your burger not come out right? I don't, anything. Can we, can, can we get to any amount of pain in your story? And she was like, honestly, Bo, I haven't been through anything hard. And I honestly wanted to say back, maybe you should pray for something. Maybe you should ask for something hard. Because you're darling and wonderful, and I want to love you, but I don't want to hear anything you have to say. I don't think you have anything to offer me. And at some point in your life, you're going to get old enough to know having something to give the world is the greatest reason for being here. And so credibility is a big deal. 
It really is. Being able to stand with people and say, I see what you're going through, and I love. I, I want to love you through it. And I can stand here saying, you're going to come out on the other side if you're willing to bring the wound and the, and the emotion and the sorrow and the struggle to the great physician. You're going to come out okay. Rachel, you can come on back. I read a quote by someone, and I loved it. She said, feeling seen is realizing that the person you're talking to has been to the same life forest because of the way they can articulate the side of the sunlight through the trees and because they carry the scent of pine. Paul said it well, too. He said, to those who are dying, we are the aroma of life. We shouldn't be ashamed of our sorrow. Sorrow isn't sin. And gratitude doesn't dissolve grief. Where we live is where we live. We're in this. And there is beauty to be found in the lament. There is beauty to be found in the things that you are suffering and even in the things that you thought you did a really great job packing away 20 years ago. Thank God I don't need to think about that again. What if? What if you just pulled something out and said, God, I'm just going to give you 10 minutes to meet me here. I'm just going to give you a minute. Tell me something I don't know about this moment. Tell me something I couldn't see then. Maybe, maybe you need to, to let your grown-up self surround your little self and say, let, we could, it's safe. It's safe to feel the sorrow. I had a whole list of things I was going to give you, questions and a metric and all the things, but I don't want to do that. I just want to give you one thing, one thing to think about as we sing these next song. And it is, I feel, fill in the blank. I need, fill in the blank. What do you feel around whatever it is that is the scariest story? And what do you need from Jesus from community, from your own self. Maybe you need forgiveness from yourself. I feel sad and I need to know why. I feel angry and I need peace. I feel deserted and I need a friend. I feel desperate and I need hope. I feel poor and I need provision. Maybe you feel just thankful and you don't need anything at all. Great, I give you all kinds of permission to be happy. I mean, you can be happy and feel and not feel that. But think and let Jesus show up in this moment and do some of the talking. Let's listen. Let's lean into what he wants to say and hear his voice as he sings over us. Find that I'm safe and warm in your loving arms. I find that I'm safe and warm in your loving arms. You see.
Thank you, Jesus.